0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day Matt, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Andrew. This is the week that was. It's this was last up, Friday. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's this Friday. But we're going to do the same thing. So That's very right. well. And yeah. there's been changes in yeah. the government from last week. So mm. I think good that we're doing it this week. So yeah. asked we're going to do it twice. That's, I it, think that's, that's right. right. We should you be know? better at it. You know, <laughs> but I, I want you to notice my haircut. Yes. You yeah. haven't noticed that? No, I didn't, no, my part, I'm sorry. My partner did with, my, yeah. with, with <laughs> dog shears this
1: morning. Oh, it looked so bad. <laughs> so if I should <laughs> bark
0: during this, you will understand.
1: There's <laughs> 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 a bit of mongrel in like this Andrew, so it works out all
0: right. Yeah. A couple of interesting things. We're, we're obviously going to be talking about the changes to the industrial relations pushed by the Labor government, but let's quickly just drop back into respective work as we've seen a really interesting amendment being moved by Monique Ryan. I think yeah, picked that up. yeah. The Labor side, particularly the Labor law firms, are very unhappy about the removal of the cost jurisdiction yeah. from the sexual harassment claims because mm-hmm. they used to run no win-no fees. And you'll recall mm-hmm. both Matt and I raised this last time. Real slap in the face for plaintiff firms. Oh, absolutely. Even though it's an accessibility issue, which mm-hmm. means anyone can bring it. Well, yep. they've gone crazy in the last couple of Oh, months.
1: yeah, they have. I mean, at it's hard accessibility is the no cost jurisdiction Andrew. but I think it's right. It's missing the point, which is that it does cut off some access to justice for people. Well, I don't think it does, but, no, but no, I fair. think what it does, yeah. it,
0: it lines the pockets of lawyers and labour Well, movement, yeah, it does also do that. Bottom line for that is if there is a finding made, Matt, is this correct? The finding made in in the jurisdiction that there was, that a person was actually sexually Mm -hmm. harassed or discriminated against, then there kicks in a cost jurisdiction. That's right. Yeah. And I think what that means in the negotiation process, there will be a no win, no fee running, but mm. they will require of you in any settlement to acknowledge the sexual harassment. Yeah, and that's a big change. It's a big change. Mm. So, you know, the strategy for us is if you're caught in that fight and you have a defensible case, just keep pushing mm. because the labour law firms will have no money to be running the case at all yep. unless they can actually prove it. Mm. So,
1: interesting. It is, yeah, it's interesting moving around. And the
0: difficulty is this is such a complex jurisdiction. Now, mm. Queensland's just moved for changes its legislation mm. around sexual and gender discrimination. Mm-hmm. So it's a much broader definition. It Not just sexual harassment, no. but, but gender discrimination. Mm-hmm. And it's really up the ante, including in its Industrial Relations Committee, a commission, a capacity to inject. Yes, that's right, Andrew, yeah. That's hard, Matt, isn't it? So in Queensland, mm-hmm. there are now at work. Mm-hmm. There is the new industrial reforms. Yep. There is the state legislation mm-hmm. and the federal legislation that you've got to navigate if you're in Queensland, four different jurisdictions yeah. dealing with exactly the same stuff. Yeah,
1: something we've talked about before, Andrew, is these multiple layers of legislation in the employment space. But, again, an interesting trend of sort of the state governments seemingly wanting to take it that bit step further. Than and they have, because federal, here, yeah.
0: if you have sexually discriminated and mm. harassed someone or treated someone different as gender, then all the defences and unfair dismissal fall away. Yeah. So whether yeah. it's harsh, unrest doesn't mm. matter. Yeah. Once that is proven, you're out. Yeah, it doesn't matter what other circumstances. And it's rise. so strange this would come from Labor when it bites in mm. the very heart of a worker-driven piece of legislation where the objective is to protect the worker. Mm. They've also changed the one of the objectives also to protect women in that process. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting anyway. And aside, but it's starting to show you there are now four different ways you have to navigate through to get mm. the end result, whether you're a plaintiff or a defendant. Yeah. Now Matt, the IRAP, <laughs> yeah. secure
1: like, jobs, better pay. Yeah, Andrew. secure yeah. jobs, better pay, and more complexity. Man. Yeah, more complexity.
0: In <laughs> yeah. you know, 1991, Paul Keating said to Bill Kelty, "This whole idea of large awards and complexity—it's just rubbish. We should mm-hmm. make it simple so that individual employers can negotiate directly with their employees to mm-hmm. have a much better and smarter system." Mm-hmm. Mm, that was a good idea. Yeah. It was yeah, a great well idea. Well articulated, yeah, yeah. well accepted yeah, for almost Yeah, it was years. the beginning of a great economy that grew out of that sort of flexibility. Yeah. And the Labor government had come in and almost torn that up. Mm. It's interesting to see because there's a lot of rejection across the crossbenches about the dramatic nature of this. Yeah. But I just want to say... The major change in all of secure jobs is the insertion of dispute provisions where there wasn't before. That's right, yeah. And what that really means is another buyback in for the unions to keep fighting all the way through, Mm. and it means you're always going to be before a commission, sometimes a court, because there's been greater access to dispute every single issue that's there. That's right. But, Matt, look, I'll flick over to you and let's deal with multi-bargaining, because that's the, the major one which I yeah, think is most contentious. I
1: you. think that's right, Andrew. Look, Lots of bits and pieces around the IR space. You know, I said last week you could almost do a whole topic around it if we wanted to. But the multi-employer bargaining, what they're calling this single interest authorisation bargaining, effectively is a model of an employee, more likely the union, bringing several employers under the umbrella of a single enterprise agreement, bargaining for it as a whole and as a collective, and bringing parties to a table to negotiate that they might not have otherwise wanted to get to. So, there's been some interesting shifts when we were talking about this last week. Really, it sat around there's two key elements to it. The first part is those employers have to have a common interest with one another to be able to be joined. So, must be some sort of shared characteristic. So it can be geography. Yep. It can be manufacturing or food processing. You're under the same award. Yeah. A whole lot of things, again, no clarity around it. No, no. It's left open-ended, so it's not even some nice, clear examples of these are the things that they are. It's years three that it could be. And then really the big question, which is the part that's changed. Now, if we had been talking about this last week, we would have said, all you needed to be roped in effectively in this was that a majority of employees across all of the employers who were named, so let's say, for example, there was about 10 employers, they had 10 employees each, all it needed was 50 as a whole, even if none of yours had said yes, you could be roped in. What they're now saying they're going to change is in order for you to be roped in, you still need to have a majority of your employees in your business wanting to be a part of that. can Can I just say...
0: The first one is the old general award provision. It is, Again, yeah. Where they set a general award based on a particular interest. Yep. And then you could be simply roped in if mm. the union made application to the commission. That's right. Yeah. There's no choice about it. Yes, yeah. Now we're a bit harder now because there's some obvious exclusions like what is a, a small business yep, a small business,
1: yeah. If you have your own enterprise agreement yep. or if you're able to, another recent change, if you're able to demonstrate that there's been six months of good faith bargaining in yep. place. And, or if you're part of another signal interest authorisation. Now, here's
0: the changes that are occurring. Matt's told you about one, which is if a majority of your employees don't support it, mm. well, the clear strategy about that is be close to your employers. Yes, right. Don't, yeah. don't, don't allow them to mm. become a captive for the union narrative. Yep. But the next one is what is a small business is going to be fought pretty hotly in the Senate. It is. And it's not going to be 15, I think. Probably no. going to be 50 people. Yep. That's an EFT, But could be as high as 100. So that's, yeah. and we're going to write a very detailed response for all of you on this yeah. once it finishes the semi-intensive. That's right. Yeah, lots of moving
1: parts in it. So let's my, have a look at what yeah. the case
0: study says anyway. I'll read this one out, Matt. Excellent. <laughs> Clems Carrots was a food processor in South Dandenong. It paid over-award wages. It employed 212 people. Clems received notification from Fair Work Commission that the AMWU was seeking to join Clems to a new food processor's EA in the Greater Dandenong area. The CEO, Catriona, looked at the list of other prospective employers and noted immediately that in its three major competitors were also named. Clems EA had expired, but how it had paid its workers was not easy to understand as it used no base wage, merely increments from past EAs. It also a clever shift arrangements and seasonal work status, unlike its local competitors. When Clems attended the Fair Work Commission to argue against its inclusion, it raised four issues. Its current EA underwrote its profitability and any loss of bargaining power could erode its financial strength. It was the smallest of its competitors and they could use the EA to make it unsustainable. Their investment in capital processes and food they processed was mostly for the Chinese market and their competitors were mostly for domestic consumption. They were not similar and had different skills and economies in the way they worked there was no union members at Clems, and the employees had voted unanimously to reject the union's overtures. So let's go to what the questions. are. Would any of the above arguments succeed? And which one?
1: Well, the fourth one now interestingly, is actually the strongest <laughs> one. Yeah, when we, when we did this last <laughs> weekend, we had a good chuckle. But the first three, look, potentially, common interest is left open-ended. So what we would be saying is if you're stuck in this position, let's assume for a moment the fourth one's not there, you'd run all these arguments, right, yeah. because it's untested before the Commission what they'll think about. But really your fourth one now, that a majority of your employees have unanimously voted to reject the union's overtures. That's the evidence you've So this is the commission.
0: alignment of your industrial relations with your business strategy. That's right. It is the key part. If Clems argued any EAA that excluded seasonal work which the union succeeded in excluding their competitors' prior years, would undermine their export focus and place other export food businesses at risk, listing over 20 non daninong based food manufacturers and processors who utilise seasonal work methods to accommodate the seasonal availability of their core products, Could they win this argument for exclusion?
1: Matt, this is the public interest test, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think looking at it narrowly within the confines of the business as well, it's another example of the common interest and the public interest sitting together here. So, you're not just saying it's just not good for me. You're saying it's actually not good for all of us. It gives the Fair Work Commission more leverage to be able to say, actually, it's not just about you.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's go into the next subject, which is flexible work arrangements. All right, Matt. There's nothing particularly new about the flexible arrangements. Section no. 65 obligations to allow people to work flexible if their caring responsibilities, yep. returning from parental leave, and those things. <laughs> there is a couple of changes in that it places a significant greater onus on the business to document in detail what
1: is the business reason. Yes. That the person can't be given flexible work. Absolutely, Andrew. So, really, here now it's no longer sufficient just to say, I have a reasonable business ground or to refer to that as some amorphous term. You really do need, as an employer, now to get your policy in order and get your decision making processes in order. So, you're documenting these business reasons and explaining that evidence to an employee when, if you choose to, reject a request for flexible so working, right So, your capability assessment, your job descriptions, yep.
0: everything need to be tidied up. Absolutely. Because there are times, genuinely, when you can't provide that flexibility. That's right. If your HR infrastructure is open and mm-hmm. says you can, it doesn't matter what you write in the letter, they're mm-hmm. just going to go, but can't you
1: hire someone for a few hours? That's right, Andrew. And it's more important now than ever because of the, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Dispute mechanisms into this, and that's so the new thing here. That's you the you new can not
0: thing only dis, you can not only dispute the process that's been underway, yep. you can now dispute as a matter of fact whether there's a reasonable business case.
1: Well, that's right. And then have the Fair Work Commission stand in your place and decide what is or what isn't. So, I mean, an absolutely Just terrible... Just like the outcome. terrible bullying
0: orders. Yes. Matt's yeah. Andrew, so yeah. I,
1: you have to build a wall between. Us. Now, that's the Fair Work right. right.
0: Commission can actually order that. They can. No, it's a crazy easy. shit, yeah, but they can. it's ridiculous. And this yeah. is exactly the sort of stuff. Soon yeah. you're mm. going to lose control of your yeah. own workplace mm. because of these derivative powers that are being vested in the Fair Work Commission. That's right. Let's have a look at a case study here
1: because we've spent a bit of time on the first one. (laughs) yes. (laughs) Okay, off you go. Gary cares for his mother, Jean, who suffers the early onset of Alzheimer's disease. It causes her to have trouble with recent memory, makes her anxious when alone, and she has mood volatility. He has been working for Mason's Menswear as a shop assistant from 9am to 3pm, five days a week. This allowed him to be present when the carer left at 4pm, prepare her meals and settle her in bed. Recently, she had a bad fall, hurting her hip. Gary took care of leave during the acute healing time, but wrote to his employer on the 12th of March 2023, saying, Pursuant to section 65 of the Fair Work Act, I seek flexible working arrangements to help manage my invalid and dementing mother. I have arranged all the care I can for her, but I cannot cover the time between 1 pm to 5 pm, your opening hours on weekdays. Please confirm I can alter my times of work to help my mother. Masons wrote back within two days saying, Dear Gary, terrible news for you. I'm afraid we cannot accommodate your proposed changes. We've spoken to our part-time staff and none are willing to change the hours or extend them to assist the business.
0: So first question, can Gary apply to the Fair Work Commission? Yes. Yes, (laughs) Yes. and what are they likely to say? They're likely to say... "So, where's the procedural fairness here? They've
1: not met the procedural requirements at all. And then they're
0: also going to say, well... Where's the business argument? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, yeah, if they didn't have it there. It's easy to replace those hours. All yes. you've got to do is extend the hours, pay overtime for a short period of time. Yeah. If it was a movement of half an hour from one hour to one mm. and a half hours, we could say, look, under the award, I can't do that. That's right. There'd be other arguments. But here, it's like a reverse onus. So yeah. You've got to be able to demonstrate it, and here they have it. That's right. Let's go on to the next exciting thing we're doing, prohibiting pay secrecy. Matt, your yeah. favourite? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's generated some great discussion between you and I. Okay, and well, this can, is a complete yeah. bloody
0: nonsense. This is I've got to tell you. Pay secrecy is designed to prevent people from being able to hide from women differential pay. Yeah, yeah. and that could be done by a requirement to disclose all remuneration to a regulator. Yep. But one of the things that is private to people and seen as being private is how I'm paid. Mm-hmm. So many people will be hurt and offended by this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What's going to happen is that any contract or any workplace instrument yep. that was created before the date on which this becomes law mm-hmm. will not have to disclose no. that if there's a pay secrecy clause. That's right. It'll be okay. enforceable. And if there is a clause in anyone after that, it will be void. Yep. But it's not very clear what will happen with a policy other than even if a policy is there for remuneration, Mm. if it's for remuneration in its broadest possible sense, Mm. then although it won't be void, it won't be enforceable, I think is about as good as it gets. Yeah, that's right, Andrew. Look, they very
1: specifically use the language of contract of employment and fair work instrument here. So it does leave it open to that interpretation. And I think importantly, as you've identified, it does create this sort of two-tier system in workplaces because... You're going to have a class of employees who have no workplace rights to ask someone about remuneration or disclose it and another class of employees who come in after the legislation's in place who do have that Again, what Matt's just said
0: is really important because these are workplace rights. Yes. To disclose or to inquire is a workplace right. Absolutely, absolutely. So now there's a a third group of people, Matt, because this Mm. is really stupid legislation. (laughs) Which is where you have a contract which has a discretionary element, mm. or a pay rise which has a discretionary component, yeah. starting before the date it mm. becomes law, but ticking in or jumping yeah. into place afterwards. That too can be disclosed and requested as and a workplace right. Yeah, so it's that,
1: a, it's a nightmare. I, nightmare I think nightmare. I oh. think it was
0: my young son here just a WTF, Dad. Are <laughs> <laughs> we really going to deal with this? So let's have a look at a problem. Yes, and just yeah. see how it plays out. Minnie was the production manager at Weld's Tobar site in Scoresby. She entered a contract in October 2021 with fixed remuneration of $140,000 per annum. An STI, that's a short-term incentive with a potential bonus up to $50,000 based on KPIs and a long-term incentive of $200,000 based on KPIs if the company successfully floats on the stock exchange before 2024. It looks likely it will float on 30 June 2023. There was a strict pay secrecy clause in the contract. Minnie was asked by Noel, a new production manager at the old site, what she was paid. Minnie told him shortly after the company called Minnie into the office and after fired her. It was procedurally fair, so we're getting right to the workplace, right issue. Okay, let's have a look at the questions. Would Minnie have a strong general protections claim about disclosing her wage? Well, we read hearing this one a little bit, didn't we, We Andrew? We We did. did. We did.
1: So the timing was really important in this one because her contract with the pay secrecy clause came into effect before the bill did. So save for there being any variations, which we don't know about, actually she wouldn't have workplace right, because if she's not, it's not coming after the um, legislation came into effect, and the pay secrecy clause in her contract would be enforceable.
0: Would Minnie have a strong general protections claim about disclosing her STI and LTI she's currently on?
1: So, assuming for a moment that that last part isn't the case, this is the part that you and I have discussed in some detail, Andrew. Remuneration not defined in the Fair Work Act at all, and not specifically in the context of this provision. I think it's arguable that incentives could be, but I think there's also an argument on the opposite side that... That says this could be something that's bigger than or outside of I think it's likely to be a workplace right now. I think so. Yeah, I think and so. I think
0: it's going to be arguments run by plaintiff law firms Yeah, because they have ample opportunity of this legislation to run everything they feel like. Yes. That they're going to run this argument, and I think that they're going to find a very happy tribunal to deal with it. Absolutely, If it yeah. relates to a woman. If it relates to any other person, I yeah. expect yeah. the tribunal is going to be less interesting. I think that's fair, Andrew, yeah. If the answer is yes to question two, what if the STI and LTI were part of an incentive policy that is a strict secrecy clause? Now, I reckon this gets a bit harder, doesn't it? It does, yeah, Because we can say with comfort, if you read the legislation in its ordinary and natural way, Mm. then the policy itself can have a pay secrecy clause.
1: That's right.
0: And the remuneration could be read as only that relating to the contract.
1: Absolutely, Andrew. But it buffers against the fact that the workplace rights are there then. So, yeah. although it might not be void in the same way that the cause and the contract is, it's whether it breaches the general protection. Yeah.
0: And I think the argument, it's a 50-50 argument mm. to say, look, remuneration must be read in the context of the document that creates it that's a that's void under the legislation. Yeah. yeah, And therefore, a policy that's a general incentive policy for all workers. Will we not subject to the pay secrecy clause? Yeah. I think it's an argument that's worth considering, it's worth investing in if you really want to do it. Yeah. But I, I'm telling you, it has risks. So yeah, let's yeah. jump on to the next thing, which is another crazy one, which is fixed-term contracts. <laughs> yes. And here's something yeah. they tried to fix that doesn't need to be fixed. That's so right. this is the dumbest piece of legislation we've seen for a while because already fixed-term contracts were well controlled and understood by caseloads. Yes. But instead of that, what they've said is any contract for more than two years... Mm for the same or substantial nature of work, so you can have a number of contracts, but yeah. nothing greater than two so, years, yeah. is no longer
1: a fixed term and you fall
0: over into being a permanent employee. That's
1: right. And all the rights of permanent employment flow as a matter of law. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> the interesting part about that is there's a usual exceptions, which yeah. are already there by the case. law. Yeah, yeah the seasonal should, work. You know, and gut where you're part of government funding. And yeah. It's for a fixed term, So yeah. it's all there, okay? Mm. Or whether it's entirely different work is mm. another carve so it's actually less helpful for employees than the current case law, can I just say? I think that's fair, Andrew, yeah. yeah. So let's test this with the problem, okay, yes. just for a bit of fun. Yeah. It? Okay. I think it's me
1: reading this time? No, I think it's my After you, measure, Matt, yep. yeah. Emma was an electrical engineer who worked initially as a project manager for GrowBuild, a building company. The project management engagement was for an 18-month fixed-term contract to supervise the electrical infrastructure works of around 15 electricians and apprentices in a new large CBD building. The contract commenced on 1 February 2022. At the conclusion of the first fixed-term contract after the new legislation came into effect, she was offered a further 18-month fixed-term contract as an electrical engineer. Her new role included documenting the electrical needs and strategic electrical design components in a design and construct tender process for a large sporting arena. In both roles, her wage was $150,000 per annum. The latter role was a standalone role and involved no supervision of others. Emma brought an application before the federal court, saying that Growbuild was involved in anti-avoidance behaviour by trying to avoid making her a permanent employee, seeking declaration she was a permanent employee, and civil penalties.
0: Right, there's a couple of things. One hundred fifty thousand. I put it there for a reason, haven't
1: I? Yes, yeah, just to bring her under the high income threshold. Right. Which yeah. means that she is subject to it. If she was over that, she's not. of so right. I just thought I now, does yeah. Emma have any chance of winning in the federal court, Matt? Well, I think this turns on the same or substantially similar. So, what we would argue here is, well, it's actually not substantially similar. The nature of the work being performed under the two roles is different enough, but it's going to turn a lot on how broad the Tribunal wants to go with substantially similar, I
0: think. Yeah, I think you're right, Matt. I think this is a definite carve-out, and this yep. shows how – I did this just to show how to manipulate the legislation Yeah. so you – have these people forever yep. on these things mm. as you switch them between roles yep. in larger enterprise. Super done. Anyway, yeah. could Emma have made an application through the dispute process in the Fair Work Commission and what outcome could she have
1: received that? Yeah, so she could have. So she would have had to have tried to resolve it at the uh, workplace level first and then could have made the applications and then the orders and outcomes that she could have achieved. Let's assume for a moment that the, the court was to find it was substantially similar. Uh, it could have been... Declared a permanent employee and all the benefits of permanency that well, this fly is under from the account. Fair Work Commission. So, we're yes, sorry, yes. Right. No, no, you're yes. quite right because yep. that's
0: the finding under the court. Yep. And if it was under the Fair Work Commission to go to conciliation, that's right. Sorry, yes. Yeah, then it's yes. a consent jurisdiction. It yeah. is, and it that, is, yeah. And you'd be crazy to consent to the jurisdiction.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. why would you? Why would you? Yeah, would you <laughs> yeah absolutely. The same breadth
0: of orders. Mm. But I think the difficulty here is if Emma gets an injunction, She goes off to the federal court. She makes her application. Mm. It's all over. We're going to see the same in the sexual harassment. Yeah, same issue. Just remember, the use of the federal court will be much more strategic. Yes. Because the nature of the tests that exist give you that entitlement to race off quickly. Yeah, yeah. So if she can then push point to substantially similar, Mm. she's off, isn't she? Yeah, she is. That's right. Okay? Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: All right, let's go to the next one. Okay, the new sexual harassment provision that's come in. Let's talk about this because this is our fourth area to look at. Mm. At the moment, we have six, nine, eight different jurisdictions locally, yep. state and territories. Yep. We have one national. Yep. Okay. Yep. We have respect at work. Mm-hmm. So um, you're counting, we're up to 10, are we? Yep, that's right. Yeah. Yep. And now we've got this. Yes. Yeah. And, got, of and of we've reasons. got safety legislation. Oh, yes, well, there's a whole other. Yeah. So can I just say to you, yeah. this is a complete mishmash and was unnecessary. But yes. Importantly here, the new sexual harassment provisions do a couple of really obvious things. One is, it's very clear about vicarious liability. Oh, very clear. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very clear about the duty that exists on an employer to prevent any form of sexual harassment. Yep. Which adds on to what exists under respect at work. Yes, absolutely. And in yep. both Queensland and Victoria, and yep. the positive duties that exist there. Yep. But what's most concerning is that it spreads beyond the employer. It is. Yeah. So it's to a PCBU or a person conducting a business or undertaking. So it even looks at informal relations that exist with it that's right yeah now remember what you've got under respect at work is Mm. this prohibition against conduct yep which even though it's not directed at a person Mm. breaches the obligations that exist okay just imagine i want you to keep remembering that Mm. here we've got a very clear look if it's intentional Mm. or if objectively it would be unreasonable Mm. and a broad test again then you're breaching this piece of legislation yeah
1: but it gives you the entitlement to race off and get an injunction. Yes, that's right, that's right. I mean, when we talk about the balance of convenience, one of the main tests for an injunction, a court will look at what does the legislation that sits around this set as the expectation and standard of behaviour. And there is now, I mean, if there was ever in doubt, there is now especially no doubt that in respect of this particular provision, it is a prohibition on that conduct occurring. So if sexual harassment is happening... You're off to get And, and change the objective and
0: purposes in the Act yes. to actually prevent it, which is the lens through which any court comes and yes. says, okay, the purpose is this. This is, and if there's unquestionable evidence that it has been happening, mm-hmm. which is often the case, I might say. Yep. You know, that yep. you're arguing about the big stuff, not the little yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's right. But if you've got the little stuff, it's all over. It you've is. You've got the injunction. Yeah. Now, remember, these are claims which will have the same as the common law type of claims mm. in general damages, in economic loss. These mm. are very – substantial. this this particular change is the most serious change. Yeah, we think it's, it's yeah. going a bit under the radar. Yeah, right? yeah. and this is disgust. the plaintiff yeah. jurisdiction. Yeah. This yeah. is the one which will be leveraged yeah. now. There's not leverage elsewhere yeah. because here is a place where you just go and get the injunction. Yeah. But once yeah. you get the injunction, mm. everyone settles because yeah. they understand yes. prima facie cases all over yeah. as Matt said. The balance of convenience says if there is a wrong being done, when I look at what's happening, should I stop it being done? Mm. And if I've got an arguable defence, well, that will stop the injunction being mm. done. But here, because of the prohibition and because of this obligation, mm. it's all over. Yeah, absolutely. So look, let's absolutely. have a look at the problem mm. and just work it through. Ruth was employed by Fixit Forklifts to liaise with Pat Stevedore's at the Melbourne docks. She was employed $120,000 per annum. FIF and Pats were not in a formal joint venture but worked collaboratively in unloading the pellets from containers. At her interview for the job, both FIF and Pats were present, and Pats made it clear they paid 50% of her wage and accruals to Fiff, and she could be directed by either on how to work. Her job was the allocation of FIF forklifts as required by Pats. There is no doubt that Ruth was subjected to repeatedly sexually inappropriate comments from Pats Wharfies where she worked. She also experienced comments belittling her as a woman, being capable and stupid as a woman, and not understanding how docs work because she was a woman by both Fifth and Pat's senior management. And that's my very long sentence that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> she spoke to her direct boss at Fifth and explained that the aggregational psychological impact of the daily misconduct. He laughed and said she needed to toughen up. They mean nothing by it. Pretty important last few words. Yeah. There's no doubt here. There's no fighting that it's occurred? No. Okay, let's go on. Could she seek an urgent relief to stop harassment and could she be successful? Who would she bring the claim against? So a few questions wrapped up then. Yeah. What do you think? Well, she's bringing against
1: everyone uh, because everyone really in that fact scenario was actually involved in the sexual harassment. Including so. a supervisor. I exactly, think. yeah, yeah, yep. that's right. Including a supervisor, including the people on the wall. She could name specific people if she wanted. She can absolutely name both businesses, even though only one might technically be her employer.
0: And she could also go under discrimination and safety law and make it prosecutorial. So no, she could throw the yeah, extra in there. Just she could.
1: Okay, yeah. let's go to the next
0: question. Could she seek compensation? And if she could, and evidence was led, she could not work in the same role ever again and was unlikely to ever work full-time again. What sort of general damages compensation would she be entitled to what would be her economic loss? Could she be compensated for it? I just say this. This is, when you look at the sexual harassment cases that are coming through the AHRC at the moment and in Victoria, it's 150 dollars to $2,000 general damages, oh, yeah. claim, which is just yeah. for loss of amenity. Okay? Yeah. yeah, But her economic loss will be the difference taken out to the age of her working life, probably yes. 65, and reduced yep. by about 30% yep. of the difference between what she can now do and what she didn't. We're talking, you know, one, one $1.5 million. Dollars. It's can big, yeah. So I want you to understand this is without doubt the most difficult yeah. there. The bit, change there. It it's the sleeper change. It is the sleeper change. No one's
1: talking about it and it's fascinating because that accessibility to the court action, something that employees did not have before,
0: now, we're going to wrap it up, mate. We do. Next week, you're going to get a lot on safety. Okay? Yes. We've got director's duties on safety. Now, put up your hand, say hello, yes. say thanks, and we're yeah. so sorry
1: about last week. Yeah, but please react to all those things. See you later. So Bye-bye. Right. Bye, everyone.